We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We're continuing with the discourses, Fihi Mafihi, of Rumi, in it is what is in it. And we are finishing up discourse number six, starting from page 49 of our PDF document, which is available online, um, which is the end of discourse number six. All right, who wants to read that italics and the paragraph? You want to start? God has set a seal on their hearts and their hearing and on their eyes is a covering. How likely is it that such a people could be full of these true words? They have never caught so much as a whiff of them. They have never tasted a drop in all their lives, neither they nor those they worship, nor their miserable household. God shows a pitcher to everyone. To some, it shows the pitcher full of water, and they drink until they are stated. Sated. Yes, satiated. Satiated. But to some, God shows it empty. What thanks can someone give for an empty pitcher? Only those whom God shows the pitcher full finds thanks for this gift. Okay, so... The overall discussion of this discourse has been the fact that, okay, there are, uh, there's the external of something, and there's always an internal. And so the point we were discussing in the last class was that, for example, when you have the saint who's giving time to the student, the saint is teaching things to the student. But there are also things implicit in the words of the teacher. For example, the teacher, by virtue of spending time, the saint, by virtue of spending time with the student, is saying, you are worth my time. Okay, um, there are things that are built into that, and so here this is finishing off this point, which is basically a matter of how perception works. So we have this ayah that's near the beginning of Al Baqarah about the kafirs. As for those who have rejected, it's the same. Um, if you warn them, do not warn them; they will not believe. And then God has sealed them off, right? And this analogy that's being given in the second part of this paragraph is that all right, you have a pitcher of water. Okay. What you see, and it's a pitcher full of water, clean, delicious water, but what you actually see reflects what's in your heart. So one person will see a pitcher full of cold, delicious water, and they themselves are thirsty for it. Yet someone else might see, no, there's nothing in there, right? Uh, But it didn't change the objective reality of that pitcher in the water. Another person will see, like the half-full, half-empty thing. Another person will see, okay, look at how much it's not full. And so that is also a lesson on how you and I look at whatever it is that's given to us in life. That the blessings that have been given to us in life are literally like a waterfall of blessings upon us. Right? We all know that, right? You can't really count how many blessings Allah has given you. But what you see is going to reflect the condition of your heart. So you can feel like you're getting gypped. You know, you're not being treated fairly. But that's, that's your choice to see it that way. Or you can see it as though... I am being given so much before, beyond what I even seek. So all you need is a glass of cold water, but you've been given a pitcher. And that's the experience every single one of us has in life. We've been given a pitcher full of water. All we need is a glass full, but how much do I actually see? And deeper, that's basically how much Allah is going to show you. And so it's Allah who is showing you that in front of you, there is actually a pitcher full of water. Or he's showing you that, no, you don't really see anything. So there's two levels here, or three levels. One is the objective reality of what's there. Level two, closer to your heart, is what do you actually perceive? And then level three, even deeper, is what, what is Allah showing you? And so there's a certain amount of predestination here. But what Allah is showing you will be, as far as you're concerned, a response to what you choose. 
and this we've talked about many times, how grateful are you? Okay. The more grateful you are, the more full the picture is going to look, and the larger the picture is going to look. Right? The more ungrateful you are, the smaller it's going to look, the more empty it's going to look. And the less you're going to feel thirsty. Yes? Does that go in line with, I don't know if this is a Hadith or an Ayah, where I believe it's a Hadith, where, where you're told to, the more you think, the more you're going to get from God. So, so there's at least two Ayahs like this. The more you think Allah, the more He'll increase things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. And think about it just a few different ways. The more grateful you become, the more your objective wealth may not change, yet you feel like you have so much more. As well as, your objective wealth will increase too. When you, is that what you were talking about as far as Allah's reaction to how you, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's the system yeah. he set up. So the more grateful you are, the more he is going to give you. Almost like a phenomenon. That if you increase in gratitude, you'll be given more. And it may be from an objective measurement that you have more. Or it may be that from an objective perspective, you have the same amount. Your need has decreased, right? Or your perception of what you have has increased. In all those cases... As far as your subjective experience uh, uh, matters, you receive increase, right? And so at one level, that is a choice, right? But what are we also saying here? That there are layers to reality, and this whole path is about getting closer and closer to reality. So the deepest lesson in all this is the deepest way for me to really see the, uh, you know, the picture as full and as large as possible is for me to increase my thirst as much as possible for Allah. That's the core here, right? One way to do that, which is very relevant to, um, to experiences in life, is imagine when you suffered like a big loss, something very painful, okay? And then you have this feeling of this hole in your heart, okay? And what is that feeling? It feels almost like physical pain, um, and it almost registers like physical pain, but a doorway of longing has just opened up in you. And now your goal is to take that longing that you have, let's say someone has left you either by way of death or a broken relationship or what have you, and then now you have this longing, now shift that longing to Allah Ta'ala. Meaning hold on to the feeling, but then talk to Allah Ta'ala with that feeling. Okay? And that is a very strong way through which to connect to Allah Ta'ala. And make all your duas with that feeling of emptiness, of longing, of breaking of, of the whole. Okay? We'll see more about that in a second. So having said that, now let's go to discourse number seven. Uh, who wants to read the first paragraph? Oh, wait, I, I forgot the first part of this paragraph. So the person who is in a state of rejection is literally saying uh, that the picture's empty. Perhaps there's no picture, or perhaps I don't even need the picture of water. And that person is in the most pathetic situation, even though in his or her mind, they're in the most independent situation. I don't need any of this. This isn't any good for me. It doesn't give me any benefit. That's what the person is telling him herself, but it's a delusion. That person is actually the most pathetic of persons. Right. And this is another way to think about this. Like the simplest response, you often periodically hear about, often periodically, you hear about people who are basically saying, Hadith are all fake, we don't need them, and stuff like that. Um, so even if we were to say hypothetically they're fake, there is so much objective wisdom in them that someone's just denying themselves of it, right? Um, but then add to that, you know, the, the, the belief that they might be true, which might require me to go get an understanding of how the Hadith are processed and everything. But the point being that a lot of times the act of rejection is not objectively saying, I don't have proof. 
It's objectively what you're really doing without realizing it. You're denying wonderful things to yourself. Okay? And that's why these people are described as pathetic. Because at the time of the Prophet, peace upon him, these were people who knew the Prophet inside and out. They all appreciated who the Prophet was, peace be upon him. They appreciated the Quran could not have been written by a human, and still they're saying no. Right? So obviously it won't be as clear-cut in our era, but the sentiment is still the same. That I have the opportunity for all of these wonderful things, but I'm choosing not to. Because again, suppose Islam is nothing but a just complete delusion. I'm saying you'd look at it objectively and still be able to say that it makes your life uh, much, much better. If you really you know, in, immerse yourself in it. Okay. okay, let's go to discourse number seven. Who wants to read? The son of Amir entered. Rumi said, your father is always occupied with God. His faith is overwhelming and reveals itself in his words. One day your father said, The people of Rome have urged me to give my daughter in marriage to the Tartars, so that our religion may become one, and this new religion of Muslimdom can disappear. Okay. <clears throat> this is setting up an interesting conversation, which we'll get into with each of the paragraphs. So the Amir, so he's the prince. His son comes to Rumi, and Rumi says, Your dad is always occupied with God. Okay. Now, so what is the, the immediate paradox? He's the prince, so his time 24-7 is focused on ruling the state. Okay? And Rumi's saying, your dad is always occupied with God. So what's the initial point right there? I could be thoroughly immersed in what looked like worldly matters, and yet it is 100% focused on God. Okay? This is to really make the point that we often make the mistake of thinking, okay, to be focused on God, you have to separate yourself from people, separate yourself from worldly things, go live in a forest, etc., live in a cave. That's not our tradition. Our tradition is that you are immersed fully in God no matter where you are, no matter when you are, right? Which could mean while you're at work. Okay? That your work becomes itself service to God. So Rumi is even saying his faith is overwhelming. Okay? He's saying this about the Amir. Which is also fascinating because often the worst people are the, the political leaders, as we might have examples in our world today uh, to, to perhaps illustrate that. But the point being that, yeah, um, these, I mean, a way to think about this is when we think of politicians, the level of truth we, accept, we expect in the language of a religious preacher is very high. We expect. If, it's not as, if it doesn't reach our, our expectations, then we, we kind of disengage. The level of truth we expect from a politician is much lower. Right? I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do this. And we kind of hope they're saying the truth, but we know we're not going to be surprised if they don't. Right? And so here you've got a politician. You've got, you got the prince, the head of state whose faith is overwhelming, and reveals itself in his words, okay? Which is essentially saying what the, his intentions by which he's doing things, as far as we can gather them. Then Rumi says, one day your father said, the people of Rome have urged me to give my daughter in marriage to the Tartars. So this is the 1200s. Uh, the Tartars are who? The Mongols. So the Mongols are, have been going in from, from southern China all the way through Afghanistan, through, through uh, Iran, Iraq, modern-day Iran, Iraq, modern-day Afghanistan, just wiping everything out, taking everything over. Rumi was originally from Afghanistan, and his father, father basically took the whole family on the run, moving further and further um, east, uh, west to avoid them. Okay? So now he's in modern-day Turkey. Um, and, and so the Amir is saying that the Romans, who are on the other side, Okay, so the Romans are coming from Europe, are saying, okay, why don't you marry your daughter off to, to the Mongols, and then all of our religions may become one. So you got Christianity, you got Islam, 
and then you got um, the the Mongol uh, religion. I forgot what it was called. Um, um, and and put it all one, and then this Islam dung can can disappear. Okay, so it's a very big political strategy to unify everyone. All right, uh, I want to continue reading. I said, when has religion ever been one? There have always been two or three, and they have always had war and fighting between them. How do you expect to make religion one? It will only be one only in the next world, at the resurrection. As for this present world, it is impossible here. For here, each religion has a different desire and design. Here, unity is impossible. It will be possible only at the resurrection, when humanity becomes one and all people fix their eyes on one place and all have one ear and one tongue. So what does he mean when he's saying religion, there's always been two or three? At first it sounds like he's saying you got Christianity, you got Islam, you've got all these other religions. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying everyone has, everyone has their own, you know, desires and mm -hmm. what their, their own, like, paths where they're going. Yeah, or uh, desires is even a really good yeah. word there. Meaning, he's saying religion is only going to be one on the Day of Judgment where everyone, their eyes are fixed on the same thing, which is what? Allah. So it means we have five Muslims in this room. Potentially, we have five different religions in this room in terms of how he's describing it. Okay. So it's not Islam, Christianity, Judaism, or Sunni, Shia, Ibadi. It's not that. It's basically saying, what is your actual target? What is your focus? So in different language, we were saying, what is your God? Another way to frame this is, what is your focus? So even if you were to take a moment right now and look at how you spent the past week, okay, what did you dedicate your time to? What was your intention in all those things? That will give you a hint of what is your focus, right? Or where do you see yourself where do you hope to see yourself 10 years from now? Okay. That'll help you get a sense of what, you're, what is your focus. Or think about who are the people who are either alive today or alive in history that you really, really wish you could meet. So imagine the people who are alive today. Who would you really wish you could meet? Like, what are the names that come right off the top of your head? Anyone? Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky? Anyone else? Uh, Ali is like, I have no idea. What? Akram Nadui. I'm looking to see you. Barack Obama. Barack Obama? Okay, interesting. I think Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is not alive, so you're probably talking about my uncle, Muhammad Ali. Uh, who we call Nudu Mamo. He would be dead, right? Alive. alive. Oh, alive. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 So, still Muhammad Ali. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, think about what that is then saying um, to you about yourself. And so this is for you to answer yourself. You know, in meeting Akram Nadwi, what are you hoping for? In meeting Dom Chomsky, what are you hoping for? In meeting Barack Obama, what are you hoping for? Part of it is what can they give you, and part of it is why specifically that person, right? This will help you get a sense of what your ideals are. And then look throughout history, like what would be the first name of the person you'd want, uh, that would come to mind in terms of who, uh, whoever it is you want to meet. Like all of us will say, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, right? But ask yourself if that's really your answer. Is it Aristotle? Is, is it Alexander the Great? Is it, I don't know, Justinian, Justinian look at that big Justinian. grin you have when you say that, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that'll give you a sense of what your ideals are. And thus, it doesn't mean you're doing anything haram. It doesn't mean you're doing anything forbidden, because it's not an obligation for us to seek the Prophet, peace be upon him. You know what I'm saying? Uh, does, it mean, does it mean you're doing something good, too, if you say, like, let's say... You you genuinely say like the Prophet uh, I would say it doesn't automatically mean you're doing something good, but probably leaning towards more likely yes than no. Okay. Right? Okay, that's, uh, 
And what I mean by I that, was very like, I am a CD. Yeah, no. no, no, I was just because I feel like the reason I asked that question is um, one thing I always feel like, for example, um, whenever I see like you know someone bigs up a scholar, like I always I feel like I want to meet them, and for me I feel like part of it is very selfish in the sense that I'm just like these people uh, from their sort of apparent um, appearance, and then also for what people say about them, they seem to be people who are close to God or they know God at some mm-hmm. level, and I want to know God, I guess, mm-hmm. and so I was like, I want to know... Why is that selfish? What they get. Or no, I, like, that is not negative. That's what I mean. I feel so like, selfishness I feel, is not necessarily negative. Uh, okay. yeah. I feel like, yeah, I guess maybe I'm trying to think selfishness is bad, I guess. Yeah, too. I mean, that's a common notion in our society, Yeah. but, I mean, most of your experience, if not 100% of it, on the Day of Judgment, is going to be selfish, yeah. right? Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even, like, you know, we speak of the pregnant woman, on the day of judgment, she's going to unload her baby, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you're crossing the bridge to the other side, you're not going to care about anybody but yourself, right? So there's a level that is pure selfish, doesn't make it wrong, right? Especially because you're not taking anything away from anyone else. That's when selfishness becomes wrong, right? But I would say, yeah, generally speaking, if you're seeking the prophet, peace be upon him, it's more than likely good. But if in the unlikely case you're seeking the prophet, peace be upon him, so as to... Uh, illustrate your own dominance or something special about you, that could be a problem. Because we had people around the Prophet who were hypocrites, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, some of the narrations attributed to Abdullah ibn Ubay was that he would literally, like in prayer time and stuff, he'd be in front row center, and he'd be the one who gets up and tells everyone, okay, be quiet, the Prophet's speaking. But he was mm-hmm. the king of the hypocrites, right? So yeah, there is that possibility. But even them, they were the minority population there. Yeah, It's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. So the point we're making is that these people are defining unity according to worldly definitions. You know, every time you hear a khatib saying, we need to be the unified, right? Okay, what does that actually mean in practice? Our population will always, always has been, from the time of the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them, and always will be, will be a diverse population. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, uh, my, my companions are like the stars in the sky, Follow any one of those, and you'll be guided, right? Because at that time, they'd use the stars to, for, for guidance. And so, yeah, Abu Bakr, when we speak of him and his personality and his approach, he's very different than Aisha, who's very different than Omar, who's very different than, than Ali, who's very different than Osman. Part of the reason I love Osman is that, is that he kind of breaks the mold of what our stereotype is. Because our stereotype is that to be upright, you have to be poor and all of that. And he was, mashallah, super wealthy, Right? And that's one thing I really appreciate about how, you know, he kind of, he breaks the mold, and he's one of the main Sahabas. You have this very big grin for what, yeah. No, that's also, I remember, like, you know, one thing, one thing we used to do back in our, like, you know, back in our uh, YM days, we do the, the like, a lot of this. I, I like how you're so hesitant, because it's recorded. I just, but, I mean, Fasal no, is recording no, but, but yeah. we used I'm to not do, affiliated. <laughs> it's okay, Wyam's not affiliated with anyway, uh, No, I'm just joking. But anyway, anyway. So we would, one thing, you know, we would, one thing was sort of that was in our syllabus or curriculum we would go over in our halabas was, was the Sahaba series. And yeah. I remember one thing that, like, even when, like, you know, I remember, when, you know, even being younger, I, I it, it, like, struck with me was certain qualities and aspects of the Sahaba where I was like, Hmm, this doesn't seem to be sort of the norm. Yeah, Sahaba-ish. Yeah. You know, as far as what's masculine, like one thing I remember telling these guys, for example, was 
you know that I remember this stuck with me. That's the story of the Prophet Sallallahu when uh, him and Abu Bakr were in the cave, like the Prophet was, it says that he was like sitting in his like lap yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And I was lap. like, yeah, and people, you know, like now, like now as well, like somebody might like if the guy is, like, yeah. that's crazy, bro. Like yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Or like like you brought up Usman as well, where like there's a softness around him. Yeah. Like, and that's not really you know we're, yeah. that's not seen as manly like by yeah. a lot of Muslims today. Yeah, it's really weird. A lot of what we have today is is what we call toxic masculinity. Yeah, right? for sure. That it has to be that manhood means conquest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And domination, and we have many 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 contradictions to that in the time of the Prophet peace be upon him. Yeah. So so at one level. What they're describing here is uh, something that would automatically be good would be the removal of, of difference and the removal of diversity. And we're saying, no, that's a reality. Okay. Uh, what is true religion is what is the focus and goal in your heart, and that is always going to remain different in this world until the other side. He's saying here unity is impossible. Okay. So that becomes a lesson then in changing how we approach how things should happen. And another way to frame that is very often when we speak of our Islam, we're speaking about some imaginary world as opposed to what's right in the ground in front of us. And, and that's a very, very different approach. When you're looking at an imaginary world, you're looking at what people should be. You're looking at the should. When you're looking at the ground in front of you, you're looking at, okay, here's the situation we're in. How do we improve it? Okay. I mean, just to list out all the different issues that students approach me on today. Okay. Uh, one student who is suicidal and then uh, made a choice that everyone in the community would consider to be haram, but that is preventing him from being suicidal. Okay? Now, how do you frame that? Because what he is doing, most of the people in the community, if not almost everyone, would say, what you're doing is haram, but it is keeping him away from suicide. Okay? That's a, that changes the whole situation. Uh, uh, women who are, even though this is not limited to men on campus, but women who are taking laxatives, and uh, taking pills to purge, to vomit, so as to lose weight, and already they're stick thin, right? Um, and then I'm forgetting some of the other issues. And so I'm saying, that's the real world stuff right in front. As opposed to when someone's saying, we need to be unified, it means they're not looking at the reality on the ground. Okay? That's one, a lofty, nice, wonderful aspiration that does not exist in this world. So what is he also saying? When looking at reality, you actually have to look at reality, not your imagination. Imagination and reality are not the same thing. Yeah, it seemed like the socialists of that, that time. Yeah. I mean, it's some of the socialist language, yeah. Yeah, it's very utopian. Is there, is there also, like, I feel like a tendency to, when Islam is framed, uh, in, like, in, like, the masjid, or, like, certain, ah, I'm not saying the masjid, but, like, when it's framed, um, in the community, it's always, it has, like, this, like, you should behave this way, you uh-huh. should, like, I feel like we focus on, uh, on things that are like totally disconnected from people's lives. It's, it's, it's disconnected when that's all we focus on, right? Because by virtue of the fact that we are speaking about the Prophet's example, peace be upon him, we are speaking of something that was real in history, but as far as we're concerned, it's imaginary. It's in our imaginations. So we still do that. But if the end result is that we don't focus on the real in front of us, then it's destructive, mm-hmm. right? Because then what happens is that you are smiling to everyone, but in your heart you're very miserable and you don't even acknowledge that you are. Right? In our society, it means basically your grandkids will probably not be Muslim then. Maybe your kids won't be Muslim, maybe you'll eventually give up. Right? Um, uh, because you're not addressing that, that pain, misery, suffering that's in your heart, and you've been told you have to just keep smiling and smiling and smiling. Right? 
And that's an issue that often students come with. They come with all these problems, and they're like, well, I'm told I should just pray and it'll go away. No, it's not going to happen that way, right? It would be like saying, okay, you've got high cholesterol, so just pray and it'll go away. Yeah. Right? And that's the same thing with a mental health issue. Right? And so, so, yeah, one of the challenges in this context of this book, it's all about, you know, the Sufi way, a major portion of the Sufi way is getting, seeing reality for what it is, which also means putting your imagination in its proper place. So instead of looking at the Prophet, peace be upon him, as this imaginary figure, you make him into someone that you're actually embodying. Now you're making it real, right? Because he is the model, as opposed to just this unattainable uh, uh, thing in the sky. Mm. Right? But there is a place for that, too, because it's still a statement of an aspiration. Okay, okay let's go to the next paragraph. Whoever wants to read, Omar, you want to continue? Or, sure. And not just picking him, I'm just it's the... Within... <laughs> Within us are many things. There is mouse in us, and there is bird. The bird carries the cage upwards while the mouse drags it down. A hundred thousand different wild beasts are together within us, but they are all converging on that moment when the mouse will renounce its mousehood and the bird its birdhood, and all become one. For the goal is neither going up or down. When the goal shows itself clearly, it will be neither above nor below. All right. So here's the interesting thing about all the stories of the Prophet, peace be upon him. No, all the stories about the different Prophets in the Quran, okay? Uh, peace be upon them all. So you have the story of Musa, alayhi salam. You have the story of Ibrahim and Ismail, alayhi salam. You have Maryam, Isa, Yaqub, Yusuf. Uh, I'm looking over there as though it'll, by osmosis, tell me <laughs> on my bookshelf. Yeah. Just stare at the Quran. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's what I was doing. Daud, Suleiman. And so, mashallah. So you have all these different people who are spoken about in the Quran. At one level, we're being told their stories. At another level, we're actually being told aspects of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So that aspect of Maryam, alayhi salam, that we're being told, at one level, it's the story of Maryam. At another level, it's Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Isa, at one level, it's his story. At another story, it's the story of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And think about it in the most simple sense. He's the primary recipient of the Quran, right? He, when he's receiving the story of Maryam, of Isa, peace be upon them, in the Quran, he's been given his guide, right? First, before he even talks to anybody else. Mm. And he is giving a reflection or a, a part of who he himself is. And so it's fascinating that the prophet most spoken about in the Quran is Musa, alayhi salam. And in many ways, he is very much like Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, especially in the aspect of leading community. And so, in that way, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has all these prophets in him. You and I <laughs> have mouse within us, have bird within us. <laughs> Mashallah. Yeah. And what is that saying? All of these different prophets that are within the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, are aspects of his personality. But they all had one exact goal, which is to get closer to Allah Ta'ala, to obey Allah Ta'ala, right? Here... Uh, these all have the goal of getting through life, but they also have their own distinct uh, aspects in themselves. Okay? And so you are one person, and at any given moment, the mouse within you will be your voice. The bird within you will be your voice. The wolf within you will be your voice. So Imam al-Ghazali narrows it down to four key voices where he can sum it all up. One voice is, is the cow or the pig. Pig is a better example. Which is basically this voice within you that is only focused on consumption. Okay? Another voice within you is the dog 
or the wolf or the lion. So think of that as an animal with fangs, where, which is sort of like this is your anger. And that voice is not focused on consumption, it's focused on devouring. This is more the, fo- the voice that's focused on conquest. And then you have a shaitan within you, uh, which is more focused on deceit. And then you have an angel within you, which is focused on getting closer to Allah. Okay. So he's, so uh, Rumi is saying you've got all these different aspects within you that converge in your person as you are one person. And then Ghazali basically narrows it down to four different uh, animals that you can, four different beings that can sum all these animals up. But then the Ummah itself is one body, right? We're taught that all the time. And one part of it hurts, the whole body hurts. And so the Ummah has dogs in it, has birds in it, has mice in it. But the Ummah as a whole is one body with all these different pieces. So when we get into the conversation on unity, we make the mistake of, of unwittingly saying unity means no diversity, unity means no disagreement, unity means everyone's on the same side. And so another, of the, from a Sunni perspective, of the very important examples of the Sahaba, may Allah be pleased with them, is the simple fact that they went to war against each other. Because from an Aqidah perspective, they're all 100% on the same side. But from a political perspective, they were in such disagreement over matters that were so close to the Prophet, peace on him, both in terms of geography, in terms of history, and in terms of purpose, uh, that it required them not only to get into disagreement, it required them to go to bloodshed. Or I shouldn't say even required. They had to be ready to even fall into or to, to get to bloodshed. And if they could have avoided it, they would have. We're saying that's also part of the experience of one body. Because, I mean, med students, you can start talking about you know, the different aspects within you where you have aspects within your body that are fighting other aspects, right? right? Yeah. You're like, yeah, we haven't covered that yet. <laughs> talk about, talk about like, antibodies and such. Well, he starts kissing my hand. Anyway, so, so the point is... So, yeah, you're... you're so anyway, so the, the point here being that you're experiencing the fact you don't even have unity here except in the sense that you are one combined body. So this whole section so far now is focused so far on purpose. Okay. All right, let's do a little bit more, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, let's go to the next paragraph. A woman lost something. Okay, how about somebody else reading that? Ali. Yes. Uh, a woman lost something. She looks left and right, in front and behind. Once she has found that thing, she no longer searches above and below, left and right, in front or behind. All at once, she, come, she becomes calm and collected. Similarly, on the resurrection day, all people will be of one eye, tongue, ear, and understanding. Okay, again, at one level, this is a very simple point. At another level, it's pretty deep, mashallah. At one level, you lose something, you look everywhere, right? You look under your bed, you look behind the door, everywhere until you find what you're looking for, and then you relax. On the Day of Judgment, everyone's going to be looking in the same direction. Now, put these two things together. Everyone has an innate need for guidance. And if you don't know where to find it, you are going to unintentionally be looking in every single direction for it until you find it. Okay. So here you have the story of Salman al-Farsi and his whole story where he's being told that such and such about religion and piety and he goes under the tutelage of a person who then betrays him, uh, which then leads him to go under the tutelage of another person who, who uses him. Then he gets sold into slavery. He's hearing about this prophet coming and then he winds up in the place that's called Yathrib that seems to fit the descriptions of this coming prophet and then he's hearing about this prophet. And then, you know, years later, he's waiting this tree that this prophet is supposed to arrive. He arrives, still the prophet fits the descriptions, and then he sits with him to test him 
you know, I'm going to give him charity, see if he accepts it, because the prophet's not supposed to accept charity. So he gives him this thing, and the prophet asks him, peace be upon him, are you giving this to me in charity as a gift? He goes, I'm giving this to you in charity. And the prophet says, I can't accept it then. Then he comes back, now I'm giving this to you as a gift, and the prophet accepts this. And Salman al-Farsi finds what he's looking for, even though it took decades. And so a point that I've been making quite a bit uh, as of late is that every one of us, uh, what is this innate yearning? Every one of us has a peace within yourself that is with God. Okay. And that peace in this dunya cannot be satisfied. And that is often what drives you. So I had a conversation earlier today uh, with, with a person who, <clears throat> you know, who is very giving to a whole lot of people, but then finds, uh, finds disappointment in the fact that no one seems to be reciprocating. Okay. And then I said to this person that, okay, you could probably have 10 people who are reciprocating, and this feeling that you have, you're probably still going to have, in this person's particular case. Or everyone around you could be reciprocating completely, and you're still going to have this feeling. Because this feeling you have is longing. And the only way this longing will be satisfied is with Allah. Okay? So you're going to look for it in other people, and, and you may not find it. You might find a taste of it, but you may not find it. You might look for it in a, a habit that might not be healthy. And you're going to get a taste of it, but it's still not going to be satisfying. And you're going to keep looking and looking until you actually find it, and then it's a challenge of, of accepting it. So you're going to look in the world in every direction. But where is this actually located? It's located within your heart, a place that does not have dimension. Right? Yes, sir? Would you, would you say, to sort of parallel some amount of Farsi story, uh, that people... There are people who, you know, the same as this, as the sort of women who, they're trying to find this thing, they're looking every which way, and even when sort of like the beam is is like smack dab mm -hmm. in front of them, and maybe they've accepted some part of it, they still don't really sort of accept it in the way that it, it satisfies their longing because Excellent. you see them looking in other places yeah. that are sort of overt yeah. and in communicating that they will fix that longing yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, another way to frame that is that a lot of times you don't realize you're looking, and yet you are, right? Someone else will look at you and look at the trajectory of the course and choices you've made in your life and say, yeah, you've totally been in search, and often the answer's been right in front of you, but you didn't even know you were searching, and so when the answer came, you just kind of ignored it, right? And so that's part of the problem of the challenge of searching is to know you're searching, and to get a better sense of what you're searching for. So here, what are we saying? You're searching for Allah, which will then also give you focus and purpose. Right? If you search for Allah, right? Or let's say you're searching for God, sincerely. So couldn't, like, you end up, I mean, yeah, couldn't you end up at any, like, any religion, possibly? Possibly. Yeah. So, like, so, I mean, like, I know we always say, oh, you know, alhamdulillah, we're on the straight path. Like, cool story, bro. But, like, I'm sure there are other, like, sincere people in other religions sure. who went on a journey, like, and ended up maybe uh, in Buddhism or whatever. Sure, sure. Not. Like, I don't think, like, we're the only, like, intelligent creatures out there. Don, 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 controversy. No, I mean, if you look, for example, the story of St. Augustine, yeah. that's St. Augustine's story, right? Yeah. You know, he was this guy who did all these kind of, like, uh, inappropriate behaviors and such, and then he, he goes through this home, his own search, and in our language, he becomes born again, mm -hmm. and goes on to becoming one of the most important uh, figures in the whole history of Christianity, mm -hmm. especially early Christianity, because yeah. he's like from the 400s, right? And so, yeah, every 
uh, religious tradition does have those people. So how does it work out where, like, I thought, like, if you look for God, like, he wants you to come to him. Like, let's say, like, there's one straight path, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what? Like, why would he lead you off somewhere else? So there's two ways to answer that. Okay. Uh, way number one is that he's taking you as far as you're seeking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, way number two, maybe you're actually not seeking. Mm-hmm. Right? But on the day of judgment, you'll still be treated fairly. That's the key part of it. See what I'm saying? So, yeah. In the same way we're saying that there's five different people in the room here who are all identifying as Muslim. Yeah. And have literally five different Islams without even realizing it, even though we all pray and everything. If we look from a global perspective, uh, it may mean, and this is hard for a lot of people to accept without misunderstanding, that you might have a room full of people who self-identify in different religions. Because we do have that in Islam. You might have a Sunni sitting next to a Shia, sitting next to something else, sitting next to something else, right? Um, But each person on the Day of Judgment will be treated fairly. So... I guess I'm just looking for clarification. So, okay, like, I guess, like, when people use the term, like, kafir or whatever, right, um, does it mean, like, disbeliever in Islam no. or disbeliever of God or religion in general? If we're speaking the uh, the context of the Quran versus if we're speaking in the context of Islamic law. In the context of Islamic law, it means non-Muslim. Okay. Right? Because they're either you're Muslim or not. Yeah. And so faith or the condition of your heart is not a measurement yeah. there. It's all about externals. If we're looking at the context of, of the Quran, which includes the condition of your heart, mm-hmm. then it is someone who felt compelled to turn to God mm-hmm. and rejected it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Or you can say suppressed it. Yeah. Right? Um, um, so, that, so someone who did not reject uh-huh. and is still not Muslim, from that lens, is not necessarily a kafir. So they could end up in Jannah. Allah knows best about that. Okay. Meaning, there are some people who say no, some people who say yes, but yeah. only Allah has the answer. But everyone agrees that this poss- will be Because it's fair. possible that, like, let's say, like, someone... Um, you'd be surprised who says yes to that. What did you say? So I was telling you, you'd be surprised who says yes and who says no and that, too. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, if you look at, like, sort of what, in our traditional scholarship, as mm-hmm. far as who has opinions, mm-hmm. people who are seen as sort of, like, more firm and mm-hmm. being hardcore have that opinion that mm-hmm. anyone will get it eventually. Yes. And then uh, people, even he's criticized by a lot of sort of Uji's more traditional scholarship for that even today. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are more like sort of you get Sufi or whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. They critique him for that view of his. But in any case, but yeah, your, your question is... Sorry, yeah. Sorry, so it's no, possible... No, so sorry. it's possible that like someone who's new on their journey... And they're just, like, turning to God in general. They don't know it's Islam. Or right. They don't know. Yeah. Like, you got the person on the island. Yeah. Like, let's say they die. There's a possibility, like, that they could go to heaven. So there are some who say absolutely yes. Uh-huh. And some who argue that internally everybody knows. But, uh, like, everyone really knows. Yeah. But, I mean, where everyone agrees is that person will be treated fairly. Huh. Right? So it sounds like I'm stopping short of saying, yes, they can go to paradise. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying definitely they will be treated fairly, and maybe that means they can go to paradise. Mm-hmm. Right? And God will treat them at their at their own exactly. I mean, with their own journey. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you another another uh, another way to explain it. So it says in the Quran that He's not going to punish someone who hasn't received a message or mm-hmm. messenger. Yeah. Which would then explain a lot of people. Yeah. Right. But I mean, the simplest example would be you have someone who has had no contact with believers whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. Nothing is guiding them to believe. Mm-hmm. And everything around them is crooked. Yeah. 
that person is not going to be treated the same way as someone who is surrounded by upright mm-hmm. people and believers in the divine. Yeah. Those have two different paths. Yeah. Let's even say it's two twins that got separated at birth. Yeah. Right? So let's say they're completely identical twins. Yeah. But this person is growing up in that world and that person is growing up in the other world. Yeah. Their day of judgment experience is going to be different. Okay. Yeah. So it's another way of saying there's not necessarily some universal scale mm-hmm. that everyone has to adhere to. Allah knows best. You're going to be held to account for your choices. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I always stop short of saying, yes, a non-Muslim can go to paradise because only Allah has that answer. Yeah. Uh, but he will treat everybody fairly. Okay. Okay, and so here, what are we saying? That everyone has this innate need to find God. And so, this is what will compel you to search, and you may not realize that you're searching. Okay, uh, let's stop right here, because you guys are already getting that look of... Sorry, I just got a call. What'd you say? I just got a call. <laughs> oh, mashallah. Okay, you know, Omar has a look that he's in meditation. Uh, no, and he's just scrubbing his no, beard. No, 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 I'm getting, no. getting, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm teasing, teasing. Yeah, I do this for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> alhamdulillah. So, we just need a mugger break. Our yes, yeah, we have to pray a mugger. Our hearts long for God, mashallah. We have to get out of this room. Okay, so, so let's make a note that we are on page 51. Uh, uh, having completed the first full paragraph, so the next paragraph begins. When ten friends share. Alright, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka na tubi lake. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.